Hello and welcome to Deep Roots, conversations about theology and ministry brought to you by Oak Hill College. Um, we took a month off for Christmas over December, but it's very nice to be back again. My name is Tim Ward and I'm joined here by my colleagues David Shaw and Alden McRae. Alden is consistently one of the sharpest dressed members of faculty. <laughs> Alden, thank you for keeping the standards high. Well, in, in Chris's absence, I, I suppose I'll have to. Now, Alden, you're nominating the topic that we're going to go at uh, for the next 40 minutes or so. So tell us what you've chosen. So I thought it'd be great to revisit the, the topic of uh, the theological interpretation of scripture, uh, uh, perhaps more broadly just how theology and scripture interact. Um, over recent decades people uh, from all sorts of different walks um, of the Christian faith have been looking at um, how uh, theology might shape our scriptural reading. In particular going back to previous generations of um, Christians for um, how they read um, the Bible, how uh, their practices might help and guide us, how they might correct us in particular ways, um, how we might learn from them, um, how uh, what they describe might um, ably describe where we're doing things well. Um, so that's uh, a part of a sort of broader movement of retrieving um, uh, aspects of um, faith and practice and theology from previous generations um, that I think... Uh, is, is gaining a lot of attention, it's got a lot of traction, can be very helpful. Um, so I thought it'd be great to talk about that with you both. Great. Well, I think we agree with that. This is something I continue to think about and we co-teach a module, don't we, that um, gets into some of this. You say revisit uh, the issues under theological interpretation of scripture. Mm. I guess you're thinking it was 18 months ago, wasn't it? We did a school of theology here on this, but we continue to think about it. People continue to talk about it. It remains significant. So want to dig in a bit further Absolutely. i mean you, you talk about retrieval and david you're going to say something about this in a moment but um is this something i mean learning from the past people might think isn't that something christians have always done mm -hmm. but has this this has particularly arisen hasn't it in recent years in in scholarship yes i think so so um over the 20th century there were um uh, different sort of groups within the church who were wanting more deliberately to have um better conversations with earlier generations of Christian mm. um, theologians, um, exegetes, pastors, preachers, and to um, be much more deliberate about uh, the way they could draw on those conversations um, as that sort of um, movement of um, retrieval has expanded into different areas of the church that's gained um, more energy, more importance um, for how people have gone about um, various tasks. And I, I think... Um, it, Perhaps it's even accelerating within evangelicalism mm. at, at the moment um, as people want to give more and more attention to what do we learn, what do we learn well, and what um, where where has there been genuine progress? Where do we um, not... Um, where and how do we not simply try to repeat the past mm. but at genuinely sort of retrieve yeah, yeah. the past for contemporary application? Um, so I think that all, all of those are, yeah, yeah. are sort of Great. parts of the... And when we say history. earlier generations, we're, we're thinking about a broad sweep here. I mean, like the first 1,600 years of the church, we're talking about the early church fathers, medievals, and then into the Protestant reformers too. Absolutely. Great. We've got a lot to talk about, and I'm excited by this stuff. Now, David, you've recently put together a paper that you delivered at a conference on this broader issue of retrieval. Just help us set the scene a bit more by talking a bit more about that. Mm, yeah, gladly. So... Um, Alden kicked us off thinking about theological interpretation of scripture. Often that would be 
um, a kind of overlapping idea to the idea of retrieval. And if I try to describe it, you'll you'll see areas of overlap already. So um, retrieval built into that word is the idea that there's something to recover um, from from the past, something to retrieve. Um, the thought that um, before the last 300 years or so, there was a healthier relationship between um, the ways that we read scripture, the ways that we thought about Christian doctrine um, and theology, and those were better integrated um, than they've become. Uh, and um, that there were a, a set of um, not just theological conclusions, but ways to read the Bible, um, and also a vision of the Christian life. All of those things in some ways are are seeking to be retrieved. The thought that there are, um, yes, theological judgments, theological ideas that we've lost contact with and don't talk much about, or that we've we've actually decided we don't think they're in the Bible and we've and we've rejected them. Um, so there are there are some theological ideas that for a long time have been um, very kind of stable within the Christian tradition, but more recently we've we've not been persuaded of. Um, so ideas like the eternal generation of the sun, mm. for example. Um, Alden can explain that to us in a moment. Um, so the idea of theological um, ideas, concepts, doctrines, um, but also that idea that um, if we go um, back into the early church, into the medieval period, um, into the reformers, um, then we find ways of reading the Bible that aren't quite like the way that we are taught to read the Bible now and how we teach people to do that. Um, so what we think about theology uh, how we read the Bible, and then also our vision for the Christian life, and uh, a number of people looking at the ways that um, the the hope, particularly of knowing and experiencing God, contemplating Him and His beauty, that is something that people have identified as a missing element in a lot of our spirituality, and one that we'd we'd really helpfully retrieve. Um, if there's, uh, I'll say one more thing, and then I'm going to throw you a question. The of which I don't have advance notice, in case anybody's wondering. It's you absolutely don't. Um, so that's, that's just the, that's the free If, I, if I bat it straight back to Alden, you'll know I don't know. There we go. <laughs> um, so um, the one comment I want to make is that, at its best, this idea of retrieval, as Alden mentioned a moment ago, isn't about simply trying to recreate the 4th century, yeah, yeah. 15th, 16th century. So this it, is not some kind of, oh, there was a golden age, if only we could get back there. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. At its best, uh, they... Um, the movement want to speak about um, creative archaeology or um, retrieval for the sake of renewal, genuinely thinking that there are resources here that are going to help the church fulfil its calling mm. um, and um, to equip um, pastors to teach and lead God's people well and so on. So so there's real there's a real advantage, there's a real heart for the church behind a lot of this. Mm. Um, that's that's the comment I wanted to make. The um, the question I'll, I'll send back to you is, how much it's right to see something of a kind of story of crisis. So Alden a minute ago said, this is really about us trying to make improvements and trying to think more carefully about the relationship between theology and scripture. Um, often it's told as much more of a story of crisis, that things have gone quite badly wrong and we need much more of a course correction. Does that ring true to you? I don't think I'm going to call it, I don't think I want to call it a crisis. I think that feels to me like an exaggeration. Hmm. I prefer the image of that you gave of course correction. So not not as in oh my goodness, a hundred and eighty degree turn, but oh look, it appears that in some ways in a lot of evangelical 
interpretation of scripture. A lot is going well. The ship is heading in the right direction, but, you know, steering a ship, driving a car. You you can't just hold the wheel in a fixed position. Things are going to throw you off. Mm -hmm. And there's times when you need to correct. Um, And I'm not too worried about haggling over whether the kind of correction that we think is needed is a tweak or a real kind of, whoa, lurch the wheel. I, I, we may feel differently about that according to where we stand and the kind of issues we see in this very complex... seems to be that's fine. Yeah. Um, I'd be a bit nervous of the language of crisis because that might sound a little bit like, I think almost everybody else has gone wrong and I'm now, and I and people who agree with me are now the saviour. I just... I think that's pretty unhelpful. Um, th- this is not like, let's have another reformation. Hmm. Um, but I, so, there's a sense of, let's calm down a bit, but equally let's not think, oh, all we need is one or two minor tweaks. And I think, the th- yeah, let me throw this in, I mean, could say a lot more, but this for now. And the thing that leads me to think that increasingly is, the more biblical interpretation and preaching that I read from the first 1,600 years of the church. So fathers, yes, medievals, yes, but crucially, I guess, for people like us, also mainline Protestant reformers. The more of that I read, the more it strikes me that some of the fundamental things they are doing with the Bible, not just around the fringes, but again and again and again, utterly centrally bread and butter for them, are not always central and bread and butter for us, for contemporary evangelicals. Hmm. And some of it we've even been warned against. So that is, as it were, if you could plonk Calvin down in one of our churches, I mean, there's a lot that he might not like, depending on the kind of church that it is, but I think one of the things that he would find weirdest is some of the central things we do and th- or think we shouldn't do with Scripture. I think he'd find some of our handling of Scripture kind of weird. Okay, so let's 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 focus on that then. So what what do you think are some of those bread and butter things to them that aren't quite so natural to us, or what would what would cause Calvin most discomfort? <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean. It's always a slightly tricky game to play because who really knows? It can be anachronistic. But as you look at the, you've described things happening in the early church, in the yeah. medieval period, particularly in the time of the Reformation, things that are bread and butter um, ideas and ways of reading the Bible. What there do you find most helpful that you think? Yeah. As I've tried to think more about this very, very broad movement, we've already name-checked it, the theological interpretation of Scripture, TIS. I mean, as we know, massively broad, mm-hmm. done by Roman Catholics, done by evangelicals, done by people who are quite liberal. So it's going to be really selective. It's a it's a broadly shared set of interests. As far as I can see, it revolves around three convictions. And you've mentioned these, but the way I headline them is doctrine. Biblical interpretation for doctrine, seeking explicitly to see doctrine come out of our biblical interpretation and biblical interpretation in light of doctrine. The assumption that doctrine is going to illumine fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Now, some parts of evangelicalism, people would go, that's not news. For others, that's something people have wanted to move away from. Mm. 
That would be one. Second would be the actual practice of interpretation. Um, again and again, what you see, I think, in older interpreters is that it's deliberately canonical and therefore figural. That means just the assumption, the full canonical context of any Bible passage is going to be absolutely crucial and fundamentally determinative in its meaning. Now, again, for some evangelicals, they'd go like, thanks, but I already knew that. Mm-hmm. For others, there'd be a nervousness of going, go quote, going there too quickly. Mm. But... Early generations seem to me to be going there quickly uh, an awful lot of the time. And related to that would be interpreting figurally or... The, the, now, these terms are difficult. Might call that allegorically. Now, I'm going to have to spend some time defining what we mean by allegorical because it can mean different things. Um, but a much greater contentment with that, seeing figural or allegorical or, the fathers would say, spiritual meanings so doctrine canonical and figural interpretation and the third would be and you've already mentioned this interpretation very much done in and for the church meaning in the light of christian experience i find puritan exegesis is doing that again and again contemporary evangelical preaching not always. Um, that will mean that godliness is thought then to be absolutely crucial for biblical interpretation. What I find interesting with students is when you put godliness on the table in relation to exegesis, what Mayers commonly says, well, yes, of course, biblical interpretation should lead to godliness. Hmm. That's where they go. Yeah. Now, of course, everybody's always thought that. But what I find students don't easily say, first of all, is... Godliness is going to be crucial for discerning well what is in the scriptures. Now, when you put that on the table, no evangelical is going to disagree with that. But if you look at, I don't know, popular courses in how to interpret the Bible or a typical little training course in a church on um, training Bible study leaders, at least in my experience, courses I've been in and previously put together, it's not been common to headline Godliness is absolutely crucial for discerning what God is saying in his word. Um, So, yeah, those would be my sort of headline areas where Calvin might look at us and say, in some parts of contemporary evangelicalism, those three things, in light of and for doctrine, canonically, figurally, in the church, in light of and out of Christian experience of sanctification. Mm. That's where you locate biblical interpretation. Those things have not always rung very loudly. And I, and I think that would raise um, a Calvinian eyebrow. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, uh, that's helped to, to lay out those three things. I just, I find really helpful because um, there you can start to see where some of that course correction that we mentioned might be helpful. So the idea that we want to read the scriptures to be able to to make theological conclusions and judgments. Um, we we have often been told that theology is something of a framework and a straitjacket that mustn't be imposed on the Bible. That it it somehow threatens 
the, the Bible rather than emerging naturally from it. That That's the sort of idea that you do sometimes hear. Um, the idea that we want to read the scriptures in light of the whole canon and to see connections, um, the, um, the, the very strong emphasis on a kind of redemptive historical reading. I read, uh, to understand a passage, I need to think at what point in history are we, what's been revealed up to that point, and, and you will find some writers saying the only information I should really be ask, thinking with are the, the ideas that are already present at that point in, in redemptive history. And, and, it, and I'm not really allowed to look on for spoilers. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, they, yes, the, that last one about the importance of, of godliness in, in the interpretation of Scripture. Um, we do, we, we think of much more objective these are the rules to, to follow in order to, to get a, a right reading. And you might, you might read Shakespeare in just the same way as you read the scriptures um, and, and succeed in the same ways. We've, we've yeah. not so much spoken about the enabling of the spirit, the community of, of faith within which to, to read the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, I, just on that, on that latter one, um, in terms of spirituality and godliness for, for Bible reading, um, of of course it is true, and pastors find this again and again, that when they teach people some, as it were, simple method and rules, if mm. you like, for interpreting the Bible, that's massively helpful. Mm. You know, you, here is how the genre of narrative works. Here's why it's important in the epistle. You see a therefore, ask what it's there for. Um you're struggling with a particular passage. Well, have you read the context it's in the chapter before? To teach those those simple exegetical rules, method, if you like, is massively right and helpful. Mm-hmm. And you know, you can find Christians all through history just taking it for granted that that is good and right and should be believed and practiced. It's absolutely that. But like, if I look back on my years as a pastor and think about you know the, the Christians in the church and their own reading of the Bible. One of the things that I, I wonder if I did, if I did as well as I could, which is a, a very English way of saying I really don't think I did. Um, is whether the, if you like the, the person who's known and walked with the Lord for many years, loves the Lord, steeped in His Word. But for whatever reasons of background or gifting, they don't have a mind that naturally takes in rules of linguistic comprehension. And even if they can take them in, they can't easily articulate them back in a way that's satisfying to someone with a mind like mine. I I wonder if a person like that felt that their pastor felt that they weren't a great reader of the Bible. But I think as I've, as the Lord's opened my eyes on this over the years, I've both in the classroom and in church, I think I've again and again met people who, for whatever reason, may not have been academic high flyers in our education system. And they couldn't quite articulate to you what they were doing with the Bible. But again and again, they found the Lord in his word, in rather profound ways. Sometimes in ways that went beyond a method I could describe. But if I look down... Honestly, I thought, you know, you're right. Um, and one of the things I would want to do in the, in the church I'm in now, you know, the 
one of the things, one of my ministries and churches I help oversee, the, the life groups, the midweek Bible study groups, is trying to find a way where we combine. Yes, let's teach each other some basic, as it were, exegetical method. How do you interpret prophecy and how would that be different from apocalyptic? That's We want to help people with that. But to do so in a way that encourages people, you know the Lord, his spirit is in you. It's through the spirit that the Lord breathed out the word. That sounds like quite a good setup for getting the Bible right and seeing the Lord in his word and being very encouraging of that. Mm. Um, and I think it is true that in, in a number of evangelical circles, um, the moves in biblical interpretation, which happened you know, through historical criticism, 18th century and onwards, which made method a big deal. And that's part of a much bigger picture than in the modern West. Um, if we can only get the method right, it'll all be fine. The, there is a truth in that, but it ought to be seen, I think, as a very, very qualified truth. Yeah. I think um, when we look at uh, when we look at how Christians have read Scripture down the centuries, that sort of balance is one of the things that I find really um, confirming about the sort of conversations we're having. So um, you go back to um, something like Augustine's On Christian Teaching, which is this terrific handbook for interpreting the Bible, and it's something that we look at in that module on um, hermeneutics. Sometimes called the first primer on preaching ever written. Absolutely. Um, so. There, he's got a section dedicated to exactly the sort of rules um, for mm. um, interpretation and exegesis that you're talking about. Um, ask how the language works. Figure out some grammar. Look at some different translations. Maybe learn some geography. Um, might knowing some of that help you to uh, recognise some some unfamiliar mm. things? Um, uh, he's absolutely clear, with no hint of apology, um, that that's a, an important part of. Um, how we should be reading scripture. But I'm really struck at, when I come to that work, what a small proportion of the overall um, uh, of the of the overall comment yeah. that, that is. Yeah, yeah. There's so much more that he wants to talk about as well. So that that's absolutely there and it's assumed and it's good and right and shouldn't be obscured. And that should give us great confidence that those sorts of um, skills and techniques are, are good and we should continue to teach them and continue to, to look for fresh ways of doing that. Yeah. Um, but there's so much more going on as well. And um, when he comes to talk about how the um, reader of Scripture should prepare themselves for reading the Bible, um, one of the first things he says is the fear of God. And that, I think, is so important in the context of understanding why is it that um, there are those in our churches who have walked with the Lord for so many years, um, who love the Lord dearly, um, from whom we would um, expect to have much to learn, because this is someone who um, who loves the Lord and ha and has walked with Him for a long time, um, and and that has given them a special vantage point to to read um, and and to hear particular things well. Hmm. So this, yeah, thank you. This is the book that used to by Augustine used to be translated often on Christian doctrine. That's right. De Doctrina Christiana, but now increasingly on Christian teaching. Because yes. it's, it's not a handbook of doctrine. It's about the teaching. Yeah, uh, that's right. Of scripture. So you just tell, tell us a bit more. What what are the things that are in that that you might not find in a 21st century evangelical primer on how to teach the Bible? Sure. it's a great question, Tim. Um, 
uh, two or three things that that you might not find. Um, one, one of the f- one of the first things is um, a discussion of how things and signs relate about how um, about how we all use words as signs of things to communicate. Uh, that's a normal part of our conversation, a uh, normal part of how language works. Mm. Um, because he's wanting, uh, Augustine's wanting to talk about how does biblical language work. Um, so this this lies um, behind the sort of figural interpretation that you mentioned earlier. And um, so he says things like um, uh, uh, logs or, or stones are, are, are things, and we use the word log or the word stone for those. Um, but he says there's actually something else going on when scripture comes to the log that Moses threw into the water to make it um, possible. There's something else going on with the stone um, that Jacob rests his head on. Um, those are things which God is uh, is using as a sign um, of something further. So that's that's a whole discussion that he gets into. Yeah. Um, that the serpent that's raised up, the brass serpent, um, isn't merely a thing. God's uh, God has orchestrated that event such that it's also a sign to us, and therefore there are layers of ultimately meaning. of Christ. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that's one th- one thing that you find in in that book. Um, okay. A question of signs and things. Um, you you find a lot too about the moral dimension of um, interpretation, like we were saying a moment ago about the importance of the fear of God and um, the broader context of what is um, what is Scripture doing? What's God using Scripture to do? And Ultimately, for Augustine, that means placing interpreting script, the interpretation of Scripture and, and the reader of Scripture within the broader context of God drawing his people to know and enjoy him. Mm. Uh, and um, so that's an important part of the, of the work, and especially um, the very special nature of enjoyment of God, that um, we enjoy God in a, in, in a way which is to be unique. God is um, uh, to be loved and enjoyed. His beauty is to be um, uh, desired for its own sake in a way that's really special. And um, so that's that's really important in terms of a context of um, the of tracing back what's happening when we read the Bible. It doesn't just go back to me and to me as a reader and with particular tools. Actually, if I if I trace it back further, it goes um, back most primitively to God and what God is using Scripture to do in His world, um, and that's that's important, I think. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, I haven't thought about this much recently, but what, one of the things that I I have appreciated and I want to think more about in in the book is um, in the the fourth section, Augustine talks about rhetoric, and he talks about and this this was his bread and butter. So this is what he was raised on. He was trained to be a professor of rhetoric. This is what he did as his day mm. job for a long time until mm. his conversion. And one of the th- one of the observations he makes there, which I'm increasingly interested by, is that th- you, you can have different sort of levels of rhetoric. You can have quite sort of gentle, normal rhetoric um, suited, to, uh, and and then you can have. Um, uh, sort of slightly grander rhetoric, um, and 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 even even more than that, you can have uh, the sort of the biggest, loudest, most profound sort sort of 
rhetoric, there are these different sort of layers, and that those layers are suited to particular, to communicating particular sorts of things. Um, and so that, and so the importance or the depth or the um, profundity of what we're talking about should be matched by our rhetoric. Mm. And I think there's quite, there's something quite special in that. And one of the areas I want to think about that more is, and um, what does that mean for for how we communicate well, and um, for the sorts of illustrations we use? Um, do, are, are we? Um, does that push me to want to look for particular kinds of illustrations suited to particular kinds of points um, yeah. that we're communicating? For example, so those those would be a few of the things okay. um, there that I appreciated. That is. A, uh, you can have it for free. Potted summary of Augustine's <laughs> on Christian teaching. Tremendous. I'd love. To, I'd love to spend the rest of our time actually just working through those three those three ideas that you've just drawn out because I, I think that takes us in really helpful directions. The um, the the first one that you mentioned was um, so there were three things as, as I heard them. The the idea that actually the world is charged with signs that things signify things, mm. um, and so we think about that. And then the idea of experiencing and drawing near to God in reading yep. the scriptures, and then think about how we how we communicate these mm. these things. Um, the the world charged with signs. I remember sitting in a in a library in in Cambridge, and someone an, an older scholar saying to me. Um, you need to realise that not every blade of grass is Eden, and not every stone a temple. Um, he was he was wary that um, the sort of things that you're describing generates an, a kind of maelstrom, a, a, a free for all of that. Reminds me of that. I think that might mean that. Um, how um, how do you not open the door to that in ways that become um, thoroughly distracting and uncontrolled. It's, that's that's one of the big questions around hmm. theological interpretation, retrieval. And I think what's becoming increasingly clear to me, I, as you know, I'm about to have study leave, and this is what I want to get into more. Hmm. What's becoming increasingly clear to me in reading the you know the, the primary older literature and also uh, uh, later recent writing on it, it that, that's just a, that's an issue that Christians have consciously grappled with and seen as an issue from the very first. Uh, so early centuries, origin from Alexandria, widely thought to have gone off the deep end on that one mm -hmm. and be far too, to use a more contemporary word, uncontrolled. Mm. So, you know, he's seeing meaning in detail after detail, which leads many modern readers scratching their heads. There are certain contemporary uh, theologians who've attempted to rehabilitate him a little bit and say, not as crazy as you think if you really mm -hmm. think about it. Um, and I think they've succeeded to a certain extent, but... Calvin still, still raises an eyebrow. There's more, more than an eyebrow. Um, uh, potentially a mob, I think, if someone's doing it in his church. Um, so if you, if you try and get into what Origen is doing, there is a kind of method in the madness, but it's still a madness. But lots of people thought Origen was bonkers in his own day. I mean, Chrysostom and lots of others. So he was thought to be a bit of an outlier. And the reason he was thought to be a bit of an outlier was he was finding spiritual or figural or allegorical detail in a particular word and was doing so without paying sufficient attention to the sentence and the paragraph and the chapter and the book in which that detail was found. And so the... The crits of him 
from contemporaries would be very like what you heard from this contemporary person in Cambridge. So it's it's not a modern insight to think some of the ancients went a bit loopy here. And all through the Middle Ages, people were debating mm-hmm. how do we see the fullness of meaning that God has put in his word without authorising anything meaning almost anything? Or, you know, stereotypically going, oh, look, there's something read in the Bible. That'll be about the blood of Jesus. Now, they didn't always get it right, and there was massive debate. But that, I mean, it's increasingly clear to me that I think, I mean, the story that historical critics from the 18th century onwards told about biblical interpretation was, and this is not to exaggerate very much, that there was 1,500 years of relative lunacy and then the reformers began to see the exegetical light. Mm-hmm. I think that story has been pretty successfully debunked as not right. Better to say, if there's a big turning point in the history of biblical interpretation, it doesn't start with the reformers. It starts with, after the reformers, the historical critics. And what the reformers were doing was basically engaging in a conversation that had been going for 1,500 years. Now... Things moved on. They had their own insights. There were improvements. Yes, of course there were improvements. It wasn't just more of the same old. Mm-hmm. But they were largely... When Calvin says of Oregon, um, he's basically lost the plot a lot of the time, but I think some allegorical interpretation is quite good, so I'm going to do it. That's just engaging within the parameters of a conversation that had been happily happening for quite a long time. Mm. So, you know, you can find Aquinas in the Middle Ages. I mean, very influentially solidifying what had often been said previously, the four senses in scripture, often. You get other people like, I just need to dig into more of this. There's a character called Nicholas of Lyra who thinks that that opens the barn door a bit too wide and would rather talk about two kinds of literal sense. So the standard story, the medievals had this settled system which allowed them to see multiple sometimes rather fanciful meanings in scripture and we've really got to put the lid on that and the reformers helped by beginning to do that is significantly untrue mm-hmm. merely as historical description yeah. i think what you've got is the church for 1600 years saying in one way or another there is often a richness of meaning in any scripture but it must not be allowed to be a free-for-all the additional meanings and this debate. What do we call those? Do we call them spiritual, allegorical, tropological, anagogical, and all these technical terms come out? Do we call them a, 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 a rich, multiple, plain sense, which seems to be Calvin's preferred way of talking? And what do we will we allow ourselves in that? But, common note, or all of these additional senses must all constantly be grounded in the literal historical. Mm-hmm. You just find that in writer after writer after writer. And it, I'm increasingly persuaded that a right way forward for us to seek an, an ongoing renewal of our biblical interpretation will, would be consciously to join that conversation, knowing the parameters within which it was conducted, Working from within that, in light of 
the development of in biblical interpretation that we now have that they didn't have. I mean, I mean, narrative would be one example. As as far as I can see, there are there are tools that have been developed in how narrative works, which you don't find on the surface of lots of older biblical interpretation that I think are genuinely helpful and relatively new. So a sense of grounded in the older conversation, acknowledging that there is new light that's been shared. Hmm. Sorry, I've, I've now entirely forgotten what the question was that provoked that rather ranting manifesto, but no, that's, that's, how right. that's what I'm feeling. <laughs> we are with Augustine's first point um, about um, how we rightly Things interpret scripture and the significance of, of signs, of meanings, however we express those. Um, now, that was wonderful. I want to ask, let's imagine somebody's thinking... I just don't know anything about this whole story. I've just I've never heard someone tell the story of how people have read the Bible over the centuries. Or maybe someone is familiar with the idea that everything was wrong until the reformers came along and then the reformers introduced grammatical, historical, sober exegesis and and um, and from that point on things are, are reliable. What what for you guys would be the the best thing to read as a kind of introduction to that to um, yeah. for a kind of balanced take? I've just been talking. Do you want to have a go? Then I'll come in. What mm. uh, one of the one of the pieces that we we read together in um, that that module we teach is uh, there's a chapter from Keith Stangland's book Spirit and the Spirit in the Letter or to, uh, something to that to that effect, and that sets out um, it's a chapter on sort of the medieval period if I'm remembering it correctly, f- starting kind of with Augustine, moving through that fourfold. Um, pattern, uh, taking in Thomas Aquinas, who wants to say um, the literal historical sense of Scripture, the way their words run, is the foundation for um, any layers of those um, richer meanings. Uh, so, uh, and then, and then, leading up towards the Reformation period, I find that a very good, um, accurate, accessible summary of um, of that period. That would be one place to go, perhaps. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm slightly wary of answering. I, mean, I will answer. Slightly wary of answering because I, I can remember when I was a pastor and um, people who weren't pastors would say, now clearly the book you must be reading is, and I'd think, oh, yeah, and, and when will I... <laughs> have you seen my unread pile? <laughs> um, if someone wanted to read one volume, I think the, the best is Todd Billings's book. Mm. The title of which I've now forgotten. Help me out. The Word of God for the People of God. Thank you. The it's wor- a great book. The wor- it is a great book. The Word of God for the People of God by J. Todd Billings. Um, I like it because it's sober and it's sensible. It doesn't sound like I've got the answer to all your problems. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's it's careful and thoughtful and judicious and very, very clear. Um I suspect many pastors would read that and feel, I just think I was already doing this. Mm-hmm. This is, at, you know, it may be, at most, this is giving me language to describe what I've always done and had a sense yeah. is right. So I can remember banging on about this stuff to someone who's a, a thoughtful pastor, and he looked at me and he said, all this figural allegory... I, I just would call that rich typology, and I've always thought that's right to do. Mm. Um, and I think uh, Billings knows that. You know, he, 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 uh, Craig Carter, in the introduction to another book on this, 
that um, that does the rounds says basically if you're an evangelical preacher you you've probably already been doing all the stuff mm. i'm talking about mm. it may be that it just gives you a language for being really clear wh- why this is good to do in ways that you can now spell out and and maybe that has a value of its own mm. yeah or or but i have found others who when they encounter this have a sense of okay the this is telling me why, it's, why it is good and right to begin to explore doing one of two things, which my existing method, as I'm aware of it, suggests to me is a bit iffy. And this is suggesting to me where my my existing method might need a, some supplementation or some flex. Hmm. That, the other thing I'd suggest reading it, if someone had time or inclination, and, and a, a preacher could well do this around sermon preparation, I guess, um, Calvin sermons, um, in- increasingly being published in excellent English translations. Mm. You'll know more about which ones are out, but there's Genesis, there's Samuel, there's Job, uh, uh, infancy narratives I've enjoyed, yep. uh, pastoral epistles as well. Uh, pastoral of course, pastoral epistles recently retranslated. Uh, uh, Ephesians has uh, been a well-loved volume for a long time. Galatians is available. Like I say, the infancy narratives. Um, uh, a small volume on uh, the death of Christ as uh, from um, Isaiah. Yep. Uh, another one from Ban of Truth recently on the uh, crucifix- crucifixion, resurrection and ascension mm. of, of Christ. Um, lots to enjoy. And it's not that he got everything right. Mm. I mean, we, don't, we don't have a Pope. It's all, that's all fine. He, he, we're allowed to think that wasn't a great sermon. Mm-hmm. He, he probably thought he preached some iffy sermons but i just as i've been reading those i just building up a picture of what he thought it was entirely legitimate to do with the bible Mm -hmm. and and i found that um i found that sort of opened up new areas for me to think about and explore yeah Mm -hmm. lovely two anecdotes for me that i I think have just helped crystallize things for me one is um, what do you do in that moment in a bible study when someone puts their hand up and says ah this reminds me of and they want to take you to another Bible passage. I think there was a point in my my kind of training in Christian ministry where I, that was a kind of an alarm bell ringing because my job was to study this passage with these people, and we didn't want to get distracted. And um, and I, th- I think a lot of what we've been saying so far about um, God's authorship of His scriptures, um, a right reading of them is going to have all that God has says in view, and 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 expect connections um there was just a lovely moment in family bible reading a couple of years ago where i realized i'd learned to relax um because my my kids were just starting to spot connections between things that they'd been reading or they'd heard in sunday school with what we read that morning and when they were putting their hands up and saying this reminds me we're reading about jesus this reminds me of what happened to david that's a thrilling moment where you're actually starting to see something of a kind of of an imagination, um, to to be ready to see those those connections and yeah. reflect on them. Um, that was my first um, my anecdote. What was my second one? It's gone entirely from my mind. Never mind. Where should we go next? Well, actually, just just a thought on that. Um, I think there's a rightness to the to feeling potentially a little bit alarmed if in a Bible study someone keeps going. This reminds me of mm. because that. That can be a strategy for avoiding 
listening hard to what the Lord is saying in the particular passage we're looking at. Mm. Now, I'm not, I think I'm not, I, I hope I wouldn't jump on people immediately. But if I can see that what we're effectively doing is lightly skimming over a number of passages and not listening hard to the Lord in any of them. I think if I'm the leader, I'd want to say, be, well, that's interesting, but shall, before we go there, shall we just see well what's being said in this particular passage? But it, the kind of, this reminds me of that you're talking about with your incredibly well-taught children, <laughs> is some... Um, is effectively spotting what we might call typological mm. or figural links. I see something in this passage about Jesus. We have looked hard at this passage about Jesus, and I just cannot help thinking of another passage, which is about David, and I now draw on careful reading of that passage. When that's what's going on, yes, I absolutely. Let, let's encourage that all the more. What about then, so uh, we started um, with Augustine and that idea of the um, the ways that um, things in Scripture um, in God is designed to signify and refer to other things and, and sometimes more than one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that idea of enjoying God mm-hmm. through his word. Um, so we've said in a couple of points already, of course every Christian would say yes to that. But are there, are there particular ways that we could make that a, a little more central or Learn a bit more about it. It's mm, a good question. I suppose one of the things that, that it does is it helps to remind us about what the in, what the ultimate intention of Scripture is. Um, at what point have you um, finished really engaging, really understanding Scripture? Um, it's not simply when you've um, understood the original meaning of a biblical passage um actually the, the, the passage itself what scripture itself wants to accomplish something um further than that it's it's drawing you in it's leading you towards um the better knowledge and enjoyment and love of god and this is one of the things that augustine draws out really well in uh, in that volume is um he says you haven't really understood a passage until you understand how it is that it builds up love for God or love for neighbour. If that's the summary of the law, if that's um, the func- if that's a function, a purpose of the Bible, um, then that's one of the goals that we have um, as where we ought to be trying to get to in our reading. So but perhaps that would be one way of, um, of seeing how we can benefit from that. Mm. Tim, what would you add? Oh, yeah, it's a great question. A couple of slightly random things occur. Just thinking about some small group Bible study, but perhaps this relates also to how we help people with individual Bible reading. It, at least in the little circles I inhabit, I think I see increasingly recommendation that um, Bible studies begin with a question like, what strikes you in this passage? So... Rather than the first question being, I don't know, something sort of that tees up the application, you know, when was the last time you found yourself losing your temper or beginning with just a straight observation, um, uh, 
what does verse 3 say about Jesus or something. Not beginning there, but beginning with a kind of almost a whole person response. What, in what strikes you, could people could answer at all sorts of levels. It could be, what strikes me is there's, when you read that out, I simply didn't understand anything of that passage at all. Or, all the way through to what struck me was this extraordinary thing about Jesus that made me rejoice. Or, but it, it invites a whole person response. And I, when I've seen a question like that used, I think that that can open up just the, the expectation that what this will be about is me and the Lord, me as a person responding to the Lord in and through this word. Um, so I think there, I think there are good anthropological as well as theological reasons why something like that, as an opener, very much sets the tone for what are we actually doing as we gather to do this thing we call study the word. Mm. And, and that mm. broadens our pool of applications in a sense as well. It's about me and the Lord and responding to the Lord or us responding to the Lord. Um, it, it gives a, a real richness to um, the different ways we might be enjoying the Lord and appreciating his beauty yep. through the word. It's actually that in and of itself is an important application yeah the, the other thing that occurred to me um, i mean this maybe this kind of comes from somewhere else but i think it's related in terms of helping ourselves and others have a sense of enjoying the lord in his word is is to take our own thinking and directly thinking of other christians to the just to the reality of where do we see this theological reality or this spiritual reality, where do we see the Lord already doing it in us? Um, that, that is, I think, relatively common in Puritan sermon application as I'm beginning to explore that. I think it's relatively uncommon in evangelical preaching, as I've heard it in the circles I've, that I've been in, there's, on the whole, there's a tendency to want application to land on a, and here's something to do better. Mm-hmm. Here's an area in which to be better. And of course, it, it's not that we exclude that. That must be right. We, we, we must keep pressing on to the goal that's been set for us. But if, the, if every application is basically, uh, let me identify an area in which you are not yet doing well enough, yeah. it's going to be quite hard for scripture reading to be and to be honest enjoyable mm. except in some somewhat masochistic sense mm. yeah and it comes back to that that point that Oldham was making about the rhetoric idea worst case scenario if your application is about things you should be doing better you will deliver that in an authoritarian aggressive way best case scenario it's a tentative suggestion but if if the content of those um, minutes in the sermon is let us rejoice in either the beauty of who God is and how he's revealed here or how wonderfully in his mercy and grace he's doing these things amongst us, then your, your, actual, your rhetorical register is going to be very different. Yes. And you're, it's going to sound a little more joyful. And the people's experience of the, of the sermon and of preaching and of reading scripture is going to be different and more varied and more textured. And and yeah. it's not going to have that same um, yeah. feeling. I I mean, this would be a whole other podcast. I think there's a whole bunch of theological issues that play in 
where this doesn't happen, I think there's a whole bunch of theological issues that mm. kind of d- drive it below the surface um, to do with how we think about salvation. Is it is it centrally to do with justification? Is it centrally to do with um, having been raised with Christ? And I know that there are debates around this, but I, but I think if a certain kind of justification is frankly the controlling centre of our of our understanding of salvation, I think that's going to lead us more to primarily you must do better. Mm-hmm. But if there's a strong sense of we have been raised with Christ, I'm inevitably going to look. Uh, it's going to be obvious to me that the Lord must be doing the, the things that I see instructed in the passage. The Lord must be doing among us. If he weren't, we might not be Christian. So he must be. So let's point those out as well as exhorting mm-hmm. to uh, to go on. And you're right, I think that will add... It'd be very hard to deliver that without a sense... If you're the pastor, without people getting a sense of... He, here is some, here's a pastor who likes us. Yeah. <laughs> and, lo- yeah. and loves us. He, mm. We're not perfect. But but he appreciates what he sees the Lord do in us, and that just makes you feel rather differently mm-hmm. towards your elders. Mm-hmm. I just took a crafty look at the little clock that's down there. We've been going for a while. I could go longer, but we should probably bring this to a close. David, you've been feeding us questions mm-hmm. the last few minutes or so. Anything practically? You're an elder in the church. You're regularly stuck into ministry. You, I mean, you've been preaching a lot lately. I know, as well mm. as lots of other things within pastoral ministry. Could you leave us with with one thing where you found your own life as a Christian in church or ministry as an elder shaped by reflection on some of these things, or ways in which you'd like it to be more so? Yeah, gladly. The um. Uh the anecdote from earlier, um, I uh, was just thinking about where I've gone to often for help in understanding a passage. So this is anecdote and testimony, really. I um, I think I'm, my my instinct very often would be pull down the most recent commentary from the shelf and see, see where we're up to on, on this sort of debate. And struck by how a lot of modern commentaries are still very caught up with some of those, um, some of those questions about... Um, historical context, um, some mm. of the scholarly debate and responses to critical readings of of the New Testament and so on, and you know, I I, I read a section on that and I I find out what the kind of what the response to those scholars is, and I discover that we don't quite know where that place was, but it might have been one of these two places. And which bits of this might come from Q? And I'm no further on. Um, <laughs> I find that online for free, I can read Augustine who um, will reflect on the faith of the Syrophoenician woman, for example, and will, as he reflects on her um, making her plea before Jesus and humbling herself, um, he will give an illustration, and he speaks about how God's grace is like the rain. Um, It runs off the high places. It gathers in the low places. Such a beautiful little picture to say, as we humble ourselves before the Lord, then... That is where God's grace naturally gathers and brings life. Mm. The the valleys, he says, are green and fertile because that's where that's where the water gathers. So, um, just for for my own encouragement and devotional reading, and for help as I'm thinking, how do I preach and communicate mm. this? Mm-hmm. I've just I found so much help there, and so that's been that's been one thing that's encouraged and helped me. The other the other thought is just 
the the way that I think we are encouraged to think about being formed as disciples of Jesus over the long haul and growing in our love for him and appreciation for him in the, in, in the scriptures which we're never going to exhaust. And that just says slow down and it says be patient to me. So the, you know, the thought of we could run a six-week course that will um, equip people to read the Bible well. I've, a six-week course can do all sorts of good, and I, I think I, you know, some things that we've talked about today would help us think. Well, what would most helpfully go into those six weeks? But it also, uh, it also, I think, encourages us to think there's a there's a longer and slower work here. If if central to the Christian calling is not getting on and being very busy for the Lord, but actually enjoying him, reflecting mm-hmm. him and coming coming to bear his image more and more as we gaze on him, then, then that encourages me week by week to, to go to the word for something slightly different. Yeah. Terrific. Thank you. This has been a great conversation. We, I mean, we know we're going to continue to think about these things, aren't we, that wanting to learn from others, wanting to learn from the past. Of mm-hmm. course, and we know this. The last thing we're saying is Augustine was the golden age. If he says it, that's obviously the that gives you your sermon. No, he's. We read him and think on a bunch of errors. Really, I'm not sure. I'm not sure you should say that from that passage. But, but discovering alongside others that there are treasures there that genuinely refresh us um, and renew us. Mm. Thank you so much. Um, we really trust you've enjoyed this podcast. Um, we're going to be back. I'm not quite sure where the next one will come out, but we already know what the next one's going to be. We're going to be in Galatians with David Shaw again, because he's recently preached through Galatians, as well as done doing lots of other thinking about it. Indeed. So, uh, yeah, I'm most of the way through preaching Galatians. I'll be a bit further on by the time okay. we record. And it's it's one of those books that I think a lot of a lot of us feel quite nervous about. How do we preach this? How do we teach it? Yep. It's Paul at his most spiky, um, and a lot of a lot of dense passages to try and work through. So we'll think about that letter and how we how we preach it and live it out. Great, looking forward to that. See you next time. <laughs>